Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. Symptoms are messengers. So the body is, you know, it's on your side. It is trying to do the right thing, for sure. And we have to be intuitive and listen to our bodies. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. About food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor, I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Thyroid conditions, it's a subject I'm consistently asked about online and one that really requires some understanding of how interconnected our systems are and how you can't simply eat for your thyroid without appreciating the multiple insults to our thyroid glands from lifestyle factors, drugs, toxins, sleep, stress, and a wider environment. This is a hefty subject, but my guest on the podcast today, Dr. Amy Gajar, is an expert with over two decades of experience treating patients and a rich understanding of integrative medicine. Dr. Amy is an integrative physician combining functional medicine, coaching, yoga, and Ayurvedic lifestyle. She trained at the Imperial College School of Medicine, same as mine, in London, and worked as a GP for several years. And now she's in Sydney and she's undergone extensive further training and is a fellow of the Australia, Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine. She's also part of the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine and a board-certified lifestyle medicine physician. Her main interests are thyroid disease, gut health, and autoimmunity. And she's also completed courses in coaching, NLP, Ayurvedic lifestyle, meditation, and is a certified Hatha and Kundalini Yoga teacher. Dr. Amy believes in taking a holistic approach to patient care, embracing all aspects of health, including physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. And Slow Butterfly, How Healing Your Thyroid Transforms Everything is her first book, and I really hope it empowers people to live with Hashimoto's and hyperthyroidism and inspire them to become the best version of themselves. It's a fantastic book. And by the end of this podcast, you should be able to understand what the thyroid gland does, how disruption of the gland can manifest in a variety of vague symptoms and what tests to think about as well. And also how you can take control of your lifestyle to better manage low thyroid conditions in particular with a practitioner. Today, we're going to talk about the spectrum of thyroid conditions, why poor thyroid health can affect your gut, mood, weight, cholesterol, muscles, and a lot more. We focus on hypothyroid conditions. We go through all the terminology today, what conventional tests lack, uh, as well as treatments uh, in terms of getting to the root cause of the issue, and also the biology of thyroid hormone release from the pituitary gland, something that we break down quite quite nicely for, for you, the listener, I hope. Um, and we talk about things that you can do to improve your management in looking at stress, sleep, movement, toxins, nutrition, and even herbs as well. Remember, you can also watch this podcast on YouTube. It's a low-cost way, no-cost way of supporting the podcast. And you can also download the Doctor's Kitchen app for free from the app store. It's packed full of recipes that are certainly going to be great for general health as well as all the health goals that we're adding to the app as well and android yes we are working on an android it takes 
ages to build uh, digital products. So please bear with us uh, whilst we do that. And uh, in the meantime, you can check out the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter. Every single week, I send you something to listen to, something to read, and a delicious recipe that you can cook every single week to take control of your health. I really hope you enjoy that newsletter and the recipes we put out there. And um, thank you so much for your attention. And um, I really think you're going to find Dr. Amy uh, a breath of fresh air. She's fantastic. You know, she's been a doctor for decades now. And uh, the, the way she breaks down this in, a, in an empathic way uh, and a holistic manner, I think, is, um, is really refreshing. So please do enjoy my conversation with Dr. Amy. Before we get started, here is a quick word from the people who make this podcast possible. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I want to start by talking a bit about like how you got into because we've known each other for a little while now through um, uh, through Ian and just me living. Actually, when was it? Did, did we meet at um, one of Fiona Tucker's uh, events or something? Was that yeah. the first time? We, we we did a talk. Yeah, so we, we did a talk. There, there uh-huh. were a few guest speakers, including Fiona, and I think she'd invited you as well. So I think that that was up in yeah, it was, it was in Sydney, and I did a little talk on gut and thyroid. That's amazing because that, that, this is when I was like getting into the whole sort of social media side of things and uh, I was very new to it and I was working in uh, Mona Vale and, and this event was like up in the northern beaches somewhere um, and I came along and it was like a, ho- a whole new world for me. I think it, was, it must have been like 2014, 2015, something like that, years and years ago now. Yes, long time ago. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so tell me a bit about how you got into it. Like, what was what was the uh, the impetus? Yeah. So, I, I guess if I if I go back to my time in London, like I I studied in London, I did my medical qualification in London, worked as a GP there for several years. I was drawn to general practice because I liked all the specialties. I actually couldn't make, make my mind up on what, what I wanted to do, but I loved the the concept of general practice and that continuity of care and seeing the whole family and everything and just encompassing all the specialties. Um, and I went straight from my registrar year into a partnership um, and I was working in an inner city practice, very busy, you know, a lot of complex cases, ethnic minorities. And it was, you know, as NHS GP jobs are, 
very stressful 10 minute appointments and you know it started to take its toll I recognized that I was interested in a lot of other things um so even back then I started to do a little little courses that I just saw around like I thought I did a CBT course I found a a medical acupuncture course so I started just delving into little things I was interested in and and I also found, interestingly, the the masters in in Guildford for, for nutrition. But at that stage, I actually wasn't ready to embark upon a masters or leave my job or anything like that. But I did my own reading and research and everything. And um, as the years passed, I it, it got to that point where I thought I, I, it was just getting quite stressful, frustrating, you know, feeling quite burnt out. And I always had an interest to travel and work abroad and. Around that time, so many of my friends were going to Australia, New Zealand, just doing six months a year. And I thought, well, it would just be great just to get a holiday and also just experience what medicine's like elsewhere. Like, is it just the UK? Is it just the NHS? Is it just, you know? So I actually went to New Zealand first for a year. I did an A&E job there. And then I had passed Sydney on the way to New Zealand. And I thought, I I just fell in love with Sydney. I thought, I'm coming back here. Um, so I got a job in Sydney as a normal GP and it was actually during that a norm, normal GP, quite a normal GP. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a standard GP job. And it was during that time I, I saw a flyer in one of the GP magazines and it was for a nutrition in medicine conference, um, organized by ACNAM, which is the Australasian college of nutritional and environmental medicine. And I thought, wow, this just sounds like, you know, a, a pathway here and I you know I went away uh, I went along to the conference uh it was just for the weekend and I just spoke to lots of you know other delegates there and some of them were um embarking upon some other training organized by ACNAM and you know they had a fellowship program where you can just sort of do various modules and all the different specialties like you know pediatrics women's health you know metabolic disease etc and I was just I just loved the conference and I just loved what I heard from fellow delegates and I thought this this is definitely a path for me and uh, so I took myself down that path um, I started doing you know module after module and the thyroid adrenal module was very interesting you know I was learning things that I'm thinking did I miss that lecture at medical school like I, well, I haven't heard about selenium and zinc and reverse t3 and how so much is involved in the thyroid. It's not just about the thyroid. And um, I also, at, around that time, started in a holistic clinic. So it, it, up in the Northern Beaches as well in Narrabeen. Started seeing a lot of patients there, you know, across a whole variety of different conditions, but saw a lot of women mainly with a lot of thyroid symptoms and also symptoms where there was just no diagnosis. And I was getting so many patients like that and coupled with the learning I was doing through ACNAM uh, and also later on the uh, Australian Society of Lifestyle Medicine and the Institute of Functional Medicine. So I, I came across all those later. I hadn't come across them be- before while well, at Watson's in the UK. It was more, you know, as you get to know people in this world, you sort of get, get to know this, this whole world sort of opens up. Um, so I guess I started to get an understanding of what's actually going on here. So common scenarios would be you know someone's been diagnosed as hypothyroid or Hashimoto's they were on thyroxine but they're coming in they're still not feeling well there may have been some improvement with the medication but they're still fatigued they've still got brain fog they're still not losing weight I'm thinking what's going on but with that background of that extra knowledge I had now I was able to sort of 
make some sense of that. Um, and as well as obviously seeing people who didn't have any formal diagnosis and recognizing why that may be that, that they're in a subclinical hypothyroidism scenario or the hormones are normal, but the antibodies hadn't been tested. Um, so it was quite enlightening. So yeah, my, my journey started there. And I guess Sydney for me has been a turning point in how I've practiced medicine. And from a time when I was thinking of giving up, giving up medicine when I was in London, I mean, you know, I, I love what I do now. This might seem like an odd question, but, um, you, you know, along the arc of your career, which has spun over 20 years now from being an inner city GP in the UK to going to New Zealand, getting involved in general practice in Australia, and now into a more holistic approach. How, how has your own health been affected? Um, have you, have you sort of sort things along your educational journey that you've put into practice on a daily basis now that you've seen the results personally? Uh, or is this something really that was a reflection of the need that you saw within the, the community of patients that you were treating? It was definitely both. Uh, certainly for myself, you know, I, I was feeling stressed and burnt out and I knew something had to change. And, you know, now I can look back and think, you know, how I, I had, you know, all those sort of thyroid symptoms myself as well and how I've been able to with this new knowledge improve my own life and lifestyle as well um so yeah I would say it's a bit of both my own personal journey um in terms of finding something I'd love to do um and also just finding that purpose and feeling more aligned in myself as well and and also of course you know meeting the needs of patients who are largely unheard in conventional general practice unfortunately yeah yeah and 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 within that you know you know when uh when gps go down this path of looking at nutritional medicine and you know integrative and functional i even even sometimes i feel like you know my my back gets up a bit like oh my my skepticism radar just like goes straight up is it the same in australia i mean we were just talking before we started about how like we met and i was you know in in australia with you and um we met at one of these these talks but is it more accepted in in that part of the world or is it just a sort of um frowned frowned upon i i feel it is more accepted um, I feel um, like integrative medicine here is is busy. There are so many practitioners across all the all the major cities, especially in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane. Um, so there's certainly a need where patients are seeking it and are more open to it. I think as well. Of course, there's still, you know, there is still in terms of conventional general practice and conventional specialists as well. I still have patients come back saying, you know, they they saw their gastroenterologist or the endocrinologist and they asked about diet and they was, they were told no diet's got nothing to do with it and why are you why, why are you off gluten and you know it, it's surprising that there is some ignorance still out there but I would say overall people are more open to it and it, I think it's more accessible because there certainly seem to be I feel more practitioners here as well across not just integrative medicine but also allied health as well. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's the access to water, fresh air, good yeah. produce. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, wow, Australia yeah. seems pretty good. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, the lifestyle. Um, like I said, the, the lifestyle here is, is is fantastic, which is 
yeah, just been a big part of, of, you know, how my, my life has changed as well. So Yeah, well, we're in the depths of winter right now, so I'm missing it massively. Like, December <laughs> is like ideal time to be in Sydney right now. But anyway, we're going to move move swiftly on from that. Um, you, you mentioned uh, you, you recognize your own thyroid health uh, symptoms. Uh, would you mind going into a bit more detail about that? What, what did you notice within yourself? Yeah, just not wanting to get up in the morning and the, pressing the snooze button and, and uh, you know, thinking I've, I've got some sleep but not, not wanting to wake up um, and go to work and, you know, just the monotony of, of work and, and the stress when you get to work of just, you know, um, I guess, yeah, and also just feeling frustrated and helpless that you can't always help people, that you just, you know, give giving out medication and then more medications to cover their side effects. So, combination of things but certainly low energy and just not feeling fulfilled um yeah for sure yeah yeah okay well look we're going to talk a lot more about thyroid health in in general today but i think you know just to take the listener on a journey with us without having to pull open a a medical textbook and look up the abbreviations and jargon that we're going to unfortunately use at some points during the pod why don't we give people sort of, of an overview idea of what thyroid health actually entails because i think you know uh, as a as a person who who isn't in medicine they've probably heard things like hashimotos and graves and subclinical hypothyroidism and you know thyroid health in general and it's a really really confusing world because there are so many different ways in which you can describe thyroid health quote unquote so i wonder if you can give a sort of like a broad uh, idea of what we mean by underactive overactive what the other terms and how those fit into those those broad categories and and other sort of areas that you feel that we need to define before we we dive deeper into um the mainstream approach to thyroid health and then the sort of i don't want to say alternative but you know the sort of nutritional and lifestyle approaches to to thyroid health so the thyroid gland is is a small gland in the neck it's uh butterfly shaped um weighs about an ounce and for a tiny little gland it does a lot there are thyroid receptors everywhere in the body and it controls so many functions so for example it upregulates metabolism neurotransmitters is needed for protein metabolism for growth development is needed for gut function and the intestinal motility a wide range of, of functions and hence a wide range of symptoms Think of the thyroid gland as a thermistor. It's very sensitive to what's going on around it, or it's like a canary in the coal mine. And in fact, this word comes from thyros, which is a Greek word meaning shield. So there's links between the thyroid and every other part of the body. The most common scenario is hypothyroidism, and hypo is a general word meaning low. So it's low-functioning thyroid, and that's the most common scenario that we see. So when we have hypothyroidism or underactive thyroid, there are various factors which we'll, which we'll go into whereby the thyroid function is slowing down. So imagine, yeah, just everything is slowing down. So the common symptoms that people would present with would be fatigue is low energy so even if they may have had a good night's sleep they're just tired on waking or often have that dip around that two three o'clock time needing chocolate coffee etc there can be brain fog memory loss forgetfulness you know, cognitive symptoms as well there can be hair loss which is uh, 
obviously quite quite a disturbing symptom in women and there can be weight issues as well so that's also another common scenario whereby people aren't losing weight or they're doing the right thing seemingly you know they're exercising more they've reduced their calories they think they should be losing weight but they're not there may be gut symptoms and often even constipation like can be one of the only symptoms that, that someone may have because the thyroid gland is, is so so important for gut health as well. So there may be IBS type symptoms, there may be you know, gut dysbiosis, which means an imbalance in the gut microbiome between the good and the bad bacteria. Uh, and there may be gynecological symptoms, so often heavy or painful periods, there could be fertility issues, um, recurrent miscarriages, and so forth. So because the thyroid gland is, is you know, is, it's part of so many other functions, there can be wide ranging symptoms. So like I said, it's much more common in women than men. So probably about a t- like a 10 to one ratio, but important to remember because I, you know, we often see men with those similar symptoms, but people don't think of thyroid when it comes to a male. But when we do the testing and that the, the, the relevant testing is we realize, oh, actually you've got Hashimoto's and hence the symptoms. So men, men can be forgotten. I think it's important to remember that as well. So hypothyroidism is is the commonest thyroid disorder so in australia it's, it's said to affect about one in 30 people and when we refer to hashimoto's this is autoimmune hashimoto's is the most common autoimmune condition and the most common cause of hypothyroidism is hashimoto's but we have to remember it's it's not just black and white it's it's you know there's that whole you know shades of gray so someone could start to develop a few antibodies. At that stage, they may be okay. They may just have subtle symptoms. When you do their thyroid testing, everything's totally fine. But if those insults to the body, to the thyroid gland continue, and that inflammation to the thyroid gland continues, then we'll start to see more symptoms. And in time, their, their thyroid hormone levels may be out of, out of the range such that it's then picked up later. But Again, the point here is, you know, the earlier we can pick this up by doing the correct testing and interpreting the test correctly and not just saying, oh, this is only a few antibodies, it doesn't matter. It does matter because the studies have shown that when people have even low levels of antibodies or um, hormone levels that aren't optimal, over time, it can progress to over hypothyroidism, which is where they really are underactive and they, they likely will need medication. And the earlier we can intervene. The analogy I like to draw between that, like, oh, just a few antibodies, that's fine. It's like, well, you're in the pre-diabetic range, so you don't have to worry about it too much. Just clean up your diet a little bit more. That's actually saying a lot, the fact that you're pushing your body up to that limit because a lot of other things have had to happen along that journey of you becoming a little bit metabolic inflexible. Um, so I, I, I really, I just wanted to punctuate that point. In 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 Hashimoto's, the earlier that we can pick 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 it up, it just means that there's going to be less disruption to the thyroid gland. Um, because often what we see clinically is that it's you know it may have been there for years, but people haven't had the right testing done. Um, you know, and and as a result, they they're at the stage where the thyroid gland has has shrunk or atrophied so much that they, they do need external thyroid hormones. On the other hand. Just to put things into perspective, we have hyperthyroidism, which is overactive thyroid. It's it's not as common. The autoimmune thyroid is called Graves. 
disease. So, and, and that's a speeding up of everything. So often there'll be weight loss, there'll be anxiety, palpitations. Um, you know, there can be some overlap. And in fact, even people with hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's can actually get flare-ups where there's this sudden release of thyroid hormone because of the destruction of the thyroid cells and they actually temporarily have hyperthyroid symptoms. So it can get confusing and that's where you need to do the adequate testing as well and obviously a, a, a thorough history. Mm, absolutely. And, and so w- within the different uh, causes of hypo, let's just focus on hypo for a second, autoimmune is the most common. What are the other sort of uh, insults that can lead to to hypo so globally iodine deficiency is the most common cause of hypothyroidism that said it's still low in australian soil as well so it's still something that is irrelevant to test for in any thyroid condition because you know it's it's not just a a problem in the developing world so but iodine deficiency is certainly the most common in terms of globally um in terms of general causes of Hashimoto's, the broad categories that we can use. Stress is a big one. Diet, gut dysbiosis, and gut infections, and environmental toxins. So I would say they're your big broad categories in terms of what's underlying Hashimoto's and indeed many autoimmune conditions. And as we know, autoimmune conditions generally are on the rise and Hashimoto's is definitely increasing as well. Um, again, is that increased incidence, increased rates of it being picked up? Probably both. Um, more recently, it's also been shown that COVID and even the the, the, vac- the sorry COVID infection as well as the vaccine have, can contribute to thyroiditis as well. And one of the reasons for that is that the thyroid gland is rich in these ACE receptors, which the spike protein of, of COVID can, can attack as well. So that's also something to bear in mind, especially given the current um, situation with COVID. Mm. And, and with those constellation of symptoms that you just described uh, for hypothyroidism earlier, so vague, right? So you've got your gastro symptoms, you've got mental health symptoms, you've got uh, weight symptoms, all, all these different things. And they could, you know, not all of them happen altogether. Um, and so you can imagine uh, the journey of a patient or maybe even someone listening to this, bouncing from clinic to clinic, seeing different specialists, you know, in their own silos and not really thinking about the broader picture. So, you know, as a GP, somebody coming into the office and saying, I've got these symptoms, you're you're thinking of hypothyroidism that you're going to test for, but I guess you're also going to be thinking about your differential. And so what are the other things that people should be thinking about as well as hypothyroidism when they, they you know, might be suffering with, with these with these symptoms? Everything links in with everything. So with, with the thyroid, we've got to think about the adrenals. We've got to think about the gut. We've got to think about the, the, you know, the, the hormone levels, the issue progesterone ratios as well. Um, there's been some interesting research a few years ago around anxiety and depression, such such that they suggested that if someone has anxiety and depression, we should be screening for thyroid conditions and vice versa. So, and in terms of gut symptoms, like I said, constipation 
can can be one, one of the one of the only sort of well, main symptoms that, that someone may present with and again it can be easy to forget about thyroid and people just hone in on on the on the gut side of things um other autoimmune conditions so even though it's said that the thyroid gland is quite sensitive and it's if there's going to be an autoimmune condition that that's often one of the first things to be affected it's also important to look at look at other autoimmune conditions as well so there is a link between for example Hashimoto's and celiac disease um so again if if someone has one they're more likely to have another as well um going back to obviously stress is one of the the main um underlying factors when it comes to autoimmunity and certainly Hashimoto's um obviously the adrenal glands can, can get affected so people just have that low energy and I think another important point to bring up is how we we take it for granted. We we, we all stress that it's almost like it's just part of life and it's normal. And in the same way that, for example, women might have heavy or painful periods, and it's just seen as normal, but it's it's not normal. So there's a lot of things that we've normalized around stress and period problems and even gut symptoms that we've almost just become to accept that as the norm but it's not the norm so yes it's important to look at all the systems and you know take take that thorough history and and a comprehensive blood test to evaluate all the different sim- symptoms as well not 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 just um, thyroid hormones yeah yeah we're, we're going to go into the differences between uh, a sort of conventional approach and a and a a, a, a sort of wider systems based approach in, in a second. You've mentioned a number of times now that um, it's largely female patients that you're seeing with um, hypothyroidism. Uh, are there certain times in life where you see uh, an increased spike of of hypothyroidism that, uh, or thyroid health problems that people should be looking out for as well? So I would say most presentations seem to occur between the 30s and 50s. There can be a shift around the menopause and there can also be a shift in the immune system after pregnancy. So Hashimoto's or a thyroiditis can occur after pregnancy and it's often, often can be misdiagnosed as just baby blues. So I think that's really important to uh, consider as well because there's, there's just that shift in the immune system and certainly around men- menopause as well, again, just that complex interplay of all the, all the hormones that can have an impact as well. Um, many other factors involved there as well. For example, we know that with menopause, you can get bone loss and osteoporosis. And as we know, that's one of the areas that we, we store toxins like heavy metals. So they can get released into the system. And then th- th- that can also then further aggravate the, the thyroid glands and, and other, other systems as well. So yeah, those areas, but What's interesting is that I'm starting to see younger and younger people with autoimmunity as well, even teenagers, which is quite disturbing. Um, and I think, again, that's, it's not so much as we know, so genetics that has changed, that, that's the environmental toxins. Um, you know, we, we never used to see girls in their teenage years with, with Hashimoto's. So, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a complex interplay of factors, um, including, obviously, stress, toxins, etc., yeah, well, I definitely want to touch on the propensity of uh, of bone loss postmenopausal and the potential link between 
uh, environmental toxins and and the, uh, the the thyroid. That's a really interesting uh, idea. I don't think I've I've looked into that too much. Um, so so I think we, we've given like a rich idea of uh, the the thyroid, what it does, the different types of thyroid health issues, the most common ones, the type of person uh, that would have uh, thyroid issues, and the other sort of differentials that we're thinking about. Let's talk a bit about how somebody would be diagnosed in a typical general practice setting or maybe even secondary care setting, um, the bloods that they would have and the treatments. And then we can go into sort of, okay, that's great as a baseline, but like what, what's missing? So, so how, how would a typical patient um, that, let's say it was, it was Dr. Amy before, you know, you, you were educated on this wide, rich variety of, of different, you know, content that you consumed and, and read and all that kind of stuff. What would Dr. Amy do, you know, prior to, to all this stuff? So we would do the TSH, which is the thyroid stimulating hormone. So that's the standard test uh, in any country, actually. Um, so that's the hormone that is made from the pituitary gland, which then basically stimulates the thyroid gland to make the thyroid hormones, mainly T4, which is thyroxine, which some uh, listeners may be familiar that that's the medication that's given as well. So TSH is the test that's done. And certainly here, the, the Medicare ruling is that if the TSH is normal, there is no justification to do the T3 and the T4 levels and nor the thyroid antibodies. That's also the case yeah, in, in, in many other countries as well. So, yeah, previously I would have done the TSH, done the thyroid test, and it's there's no red stars. I was like, yeah, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> you know, because when you're in that busy setting, looking at all the results, you're just looking for the, for the ones that are marked abnormal. So um, it wouldn't get picked up if it was in the range. So generally speaking... When it comes to um, sort of primary hypothyroidism, the higher the TSH, that's implying the more underactive the thyroid gland is. So generally when it comes out of that range, so let's just say that the range went up to say three or four, it can vary in different countries and different labs even. Once it comes out of that range, let's just say it's five, then it will get flagged as abnormal. And then it's like, oh, there's, there's underactive thyroid. So it's higher. Be- let, let, let's just, sorry, ju- uh, I, I just want to, just from the listener, because I, I know it's implicit in the name to us, like thyroid simulating hormone, but may, I just want to underline that point, exactly how that hormone released from the pituitary interacts with the thyroid gland. So uh, just, just take us through that, that little bit one more time, and then we can talk about why, you know, you, you would do the, the other tests as well. Yeah. So, um, there's a negative feedback mechanism. So there's a um, like a balance between the thyroid stimulating hormone and the thyroid hormones. So the, the TSH stimulates the sort of gets secreted from the pituitary gland and then stimulates the thyroid cells to make uh, thyroxine, which is T4. So that, that's the main hormone that, that's made. When the T4 or thyroxine level reaches a a an appropriate level then there's a negative feedback back to the brain saying okay we don't need any more tsh here so there's this constant sort of feedback and talk between all the different glands just to get the right levels of everything 
So thyroxine itself, T4, is, is as I said, it's the main hormone that's produced from the thyroid cells. However, it's not the most active. It then has to get converted to T3, which is the most metabolically active hormone. The interesting part is that most of that T4 to T3 conversion does not happen in the thyroid gland. It actually happens outside in the peripheral tissues, such as the liver and kidney and heart and yeah, just other, other tissues. So hence the importance of the whole body and not just the thyroid glands when we're discussing thyroid health. You've got T4, it's out in the system, it gets converted to T3. What, what, how is that T4 uptaken by the liver cells, the, the, the muscle cells, the gut cells? Like what, what, in what form is it taken in? Is it literally T4 and then there's like a, a T4 receptor on, on the cells of these different parts of the body? Or is it within the, the surface? Or you know, how, Just talk us through that. I know, I know it's a bit geeky. We just dive into that and then we can dive right, right back out. T4 is produced and that is then converted to T3, which is the most active hormone. But it is important to remember that, yes, even though T3 um, is the most metabolically active about four or five times as much as T4, both hormones are important. So even the thyroxine, the T4 itself, has a direct impact at the cellular level or the, um, to, 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 for example, in the gut to cause intestinal motility, for example. T3 also, you know, there's receptors at the cell service and also um, mitochondria as well. So, and that is involved in upregulating energy, neurotransmitters and so forth as well, and and improving and increasing mitochondrial numbers and function as well. So both have their independent functions as well. Uh, Often we can get caught up in only T3 is important, but both are important at, at, at the cellular level level. For sure. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that that because I, I I think in a lot of people's heads it's like oh yeah T four is converted to T three so we're just going to focus on T three whereas I think just to underline that point T four is important it's not like you know a junk hormone molecule and in, in the pathway of everything else it's you know it it is important so yeah so and as I said the, the other. Key, key fact of note is that most of that conversion happens um, via these enzymes called deiodinases, um, which are located in, in the periphery, not, you know, so most of that conversion is happening out, outside the thyroid gland. And again, as with any enzyme, there can be genetic defects. So, so that can also be um, a reason why people don't convert as well from T4 to T3 and, and why for some people thyroxine isn't enough and they do need extra T3 given as well. Broadly speaking, um, in terms of the factors needed for that T4 to T3 conversion, I mean, the deiodinases require selenium. It's a selenium-dependent enzyme. But generally for thyroid function, we need selenium, magnesium, iron, zinc, B vitamins, vitamin C, vitamin D. And on the other hand, the things that can stop that conversion happening and the production of thyroid hormones. Stress, as we said, is a big one. Toxins like other halogens like fluoride and chlorine, gut infections, plastics, heavy metals like mercury, which can actually concentrate in the, in the brain as well and affect the TSH secretion. So if we think about, on the one hand, we've got factors that we need for that thyroid hormone conversion to happen. And then on the other hand, we've got the factors that stop the production. So if we have 
a situation where we don't have enough nutrients like zinc, selenium, iodine, etc., or we have too much of the factors that are impeding that conversion, such as stress and toxins and gut infections, then the body or the brain in perceiving stress says, whoa, this the stress here, we need to slow things down. So what then happens is that T4 starts to get shunted towards making another hormone called reverse T3. Reverse T3 is that is the mirror image of T3. It's the it's the isomer. And but it's inactive. And it's actually a hibernational signal in mammals. So again, I personally didn't have an appreciation of that in my old Dr. Amy days. Um, that just these these are just things I've learned, you know, as, as I've done this further training. So the body is trying to actually do the right thing because it's perceiving stress, whether that's nutritional deficiency or emotional stress or toxins, and saying we, we don't want to waste away here, you know, because the thyroid gland is involved in in metabolism, etc. And, and so it's it's trying to do the right thing. It's a survival mechanism to say, well, we've got to slow things down here, um, and so that. T4 to reverse T3 shunting happens, so there's less T3. And then obviously we can then start to manifest those symptoms of hypothyroidism like fatigue, weight, which which are annoying, but it's the body trying to do the right thing. So giving medication, yes, can help, but we need to see what's going on because if something has come out of balance, let's try and bring it back into balance. First, you have your thyroid hormone, the lovely shield in your neck, uh, your, your thyroid gland, rather. That puts into the bloodstream these hormones that keep everything fine and dandy. So you've got a well-functioning gut system. You've got uh, a, a, a well-functioning metabolic system. Everything, your temperature control, your thermostat, everything is working normally. This requires the conversion of T4 to T3. And depending on genetics, so the conversion of that T4 to T3 might be different. Depending on other stresses, including the lack of nutrients or the presence of environmental toxins or stress, that can dampen down that conversion to D3. And this can manifest in symptoms. The other thing, which again was new to me a few years ago, is when that that conversion is dampened, you get this reverse T3, this sort of parallel conversion pathway that actually stimulates being like a bear, going into hibernation mode where you just want to shut down. It's almost like, you know, you have a flu and your body is telling you, you need to stay in bed. You're not going to go to work today. And you just, you just literally can't get out of bed. You barely can have some broth and stuff. So this is giving like a, a real lovely picture because everyone has different exposures to these stresses that can limit that conversion pathway. And they also have different genetics as well. So depending on which environment you find yourself in, you can manifest these symptoms or people in this exactly same environment can, you know, be stress-free and not have any issues with their thyroid. Is that, is that sort of like a, a, an overarching picture of what you've just described? Absolutely. S- symptoms are messengers. So the body is, you know, it's on your side. It is trying to do the right thing for sure. And we have to be intuitive and listen to our bodies. Yeah. Okay. So within mainstream, 
uh, I, I hate the word main show. I've got to think of like a different word. Like, I, I, that's why I always look to my, myself. I'm like, oh, Dr. Rupee or like, oh, Dr. Amy. You know, someone would have come in. If they've got like high TSH, uh, you know, we'll do some extra tests and say, okay, we'll, we'll top you up with a bit of thyroxine. What, what is that? What is that levothyroxine that we're, we tend to be giving? You know, it's a standard practice in, in, uh, in the NHS. I'm not too sure if it's different in Australia anymore, but what, 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 what else would you, would you do within the sort of like conventional setting? That would be the main treatment. So if, if the TSH is, is raised, then either it's monitoring or it's a medication depending on on the extent so and and again that can de- depend on the practitioner um interestingly the RSCGP guidelines um allow a TSH up to 10 what's the range uh, that the uh, the royal college um uh, suggests is normal for TSH up, up up to 10 up to 10 whereas from a functional medicine point of view the optimal TSH is 0.5 to around 2.5 generally speaking generally speaking, and most lab ranges would go up to three or four. So even recently, I saw someone who'd come in with symptoms, nothing's been diagnosed, and look back at some previous results that she'd had done, her TSH was seven, and, and nothing was said by her GP. Um, so it's it's basically either monitoring or a medication will be offered, and that's T4. Um and that's a synthetic medication, which, yeah, it's it's given on the presumption that yes, some of that will also convert to T three. You know, the, the general ratio is of T four to T three in the body is around four, four, four to one anyway. Um, so it's made on that assumption, but as we know, not everyone converts to T three. So we may have a situation where the TSH is in the normal range. It's not high. It's not been marked as abnormal, but people can still have hypothyroid symptoms because. More, more, most commonly stress is actually reducing the TSH. Cortisol has the effect of uh, not just reducing that conversion of T4 to T3, but also actually suppressing the, the, the TSH as well, as can sleep deprivation or illness or starvation and very low calorie diet. So um, that's why it's important to look at the whole picture and not just that TSH. I just want to underline that point. I think that's a really important point there because it goes towards this uh, sort of concept of um cortisol steel so maybe we could just back up a bit and just talk a bit about what what we mean by cortisol because i think again it's one of these terms like oh like you know measure your cortisol your cortisol is high whatever what does that actually mean uh because it's it's very high up the sort of food chain of, of hormones and it can have that sort of effect downstream particularly on on thyroid hormones so let's start with, with cortisol where it's released and 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 how that impacts the, the these other pathways that we've already described yeah so cortisol is a, is like the stress hormone that's made in the adrenal glands but in the hypothalamus which part of the brain that makes a hormone called corticotropin releasing hormone which then stimulates the pituitary gland to make ACTH adrenocorticotrophic hormone and then that then stimulates the adrenal glands to make cortisol. So that, that's a, a feedback loop in itself. So often known as the HPA axis or the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. And then we also have the hypothalamus pituitary thyroid axis. Cortisol has many functions and, and CRH, ACTH, they, they can also suppress 
TSH as well. So if, we, if, we, if we're in a stress situation, again, the body trying to do the right thing, it wants to slow things down. It actually, the effects actually start upstream where you get a reduced um, uh, TSH and then hence the, the thyroid hormones as well. And obviously cortisol's effects on increasing reverse T3 by reducing that conversion of T4 to T3. Yeah. So this is where you have an environment where your TSH might be in the normal range or the high normal range, but there is still an issue going on because you haven't perhaps through even, you know, we're, we're, I, I, I'm sort of more leaning towards like taking a really thorough history. You don't have to do, you know, all these uh, extra functional tests in, in my view. You can simply ask the questions about stress and that can potentially explain normal TSH results with the presence of a thyroid condition. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And as you said, you know, we, we, we need that full, full history um, and you know, obviously appropriate examination as well. And, and also to look at the actual results and not just look at what's in range. So you know, to, to consider what is a TSH, but what are the T4 and T3 levels? I mean, obviously that's further test that, you know, that can can be done late, later. And I, I routinely would ask for, for, for all those, especially if there are thyroid symptoms. So even then when we look at the T4 and T3, it's, it's not just in a range, but is it optimal? So, uh, and obviously the thyroid antibodies, uh, I, I would do, especially if I'm sus- suspecting Hashimoto. So, we, 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 you know, we're justified to do those blood tests if there are the clinical symptoms and, and that's where you know, Medicare w- would support further testing um, if we have, have clinical relevance. Yeah, Med- Medicare being the sort of equivalent of the NHS, but in Australia. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, obviously, when we're doing the blood test, we'll, we'll, we'll do you know, a comprehensive set of blood tests. Um, and that, that can include the adrenal hormones. So, you know, it's not the most accurate in the blood test, but they can be done to give us an idea. And, you know, at least if, if they're very high or very low, that tells us there's some obviously adrenal function going on here as well. Um, there's also another adrenal hormone called DHEA that, that we measure as well. And, and that, that, that's, that also tells us a little bit about adrenal function as well. Um, so, yeah, so a comprehensive set of blood tests looking at, the whole thyroid panel, but also adrenals, nutrients, sex hormones, lipid profiles, because again, um, thyroid hormones are needed for cholesterol metabolism. So often people may have high cholesterol. And going back to what we were saying earlier, where people can be seen in different departments and, and their diagnosis hasn't been made. So someone might have fertility issues and be, you know, go, go to a specialist, they might have high, high cholesterol or palpitations and be sent to a cardiologist gut issues and constipation would be sent to a gastroenterologist, anxiety, depression, psychologist, or psychiatrist. So yeah, comprehensive history exam, appropriate testing, um, and, and taking it from there. I think these are some really important points here. That's why I just want to, I want to stay on this section for a little while, because we've talked about like uh, old Dr. Rupi or old Dr. Amy, you know, those sort of standard blood panels that we do send the patient uh, away you know like there's nothing wrong with you your, your bloods are normal or okay we'll let you know we'll do a few extra tests but if, if the antibodies are negative or whatever then we won't do much else um what you you rattled off some some blood some extra blood tests that you do someone comes to see you and you're suspecting 
low thyroid, a, a, a low thyroid condition. What, what, what kind of things do you want to make sure that you've checked before you start instigating any treatment or you formulate a diagnosis of not just low thyroid, but the root cause of said low thyroid condition? In terms of the thyroid panel, it would be the TSH, T3, T4, and thyroid antibodies. I also run adrenal hormones, so cortisol and DHA. Standard tests such as a full blood count, make sure they're not anemic. Uh, urea and electrolytes, liver function tests, uh, because that can give us some markers around inflammation, for example, uh, especially some of the, those liver markers, inflammatory markers like CRP, ESR, uh, just to send just to assess the, the state of you know, any inflammation in the body. Depending on other symptoms, I may also run other autoimmune tests. So, for example, um, many patients with Hashimoto's, even though they may not have celiac disease, have the celiac gene. So that's one of the uh, genetic predispositions to developing anything autoimmune, not just celiac disease. So I, I find that the, most of my patients with Hashimoto's do have the gene, even though they may not have celiac disease, but obviously there is increased risk for that. Um, there may be other, yeah, other auto antibodies I may run again, depending on the symptoms, but ANA, which is anti-nuclear antibody, if that's positive, then we can do more thorough testing, which can indicate whether they might have connective tissue disease or lupus, for example. Nutrients like iron, B12, uh, plasma, zinc, serum, copper, um, I, I, t I test for as well. How, how, um, accurate are the bloods that look for specific mineral or trace minerals in, in blood? Because my understanding is depending on the nutrient, you, you know, a serum level doesn't tell you much and you're really looking for an intracellular level, but that there, there aren't many tests that can give you that sort of, de that, that can delineate between the two, which is quite important. Sure. Sure. So it, it, it's a guide. It's, um, it's more to, to assess if there's a if there's a, a a significant deficiency. So, for example, magnesium is is a difficult one to test for. We can test for red blood cell magnesium, but it has to be pretty low for it to be to to show up. But certainly, I, I find it can help in terms of, for example, plasma, zinc, and serum, copper, because that that ratio is important. Like we, we know that low zinc to high copper, there can be a correlation with anxiety, for example. And high copper can also deplete other minerals as well. So it's a guide, but there are also other functional tests that can be done. But because the, the tests that can potentially be done on Medicare, you know, it, it can be done in a screening. And also depending on, on other symptoms, like if there's hair loss, for example, then it will be more relevant to do, to, to do some of those bloods. Okay, so you've got these you got these bloods. Let's say you've got a perfect patient that's like, give me all the tests. I want all the tests. I want to know. I've got an analytical mind. Um, you, you've done all these. What, what are some of the – we've already talked a little about what, about what could predispose or preempt the, the hypothyroid condition, the low thyroid condition. What, what are the, some of the things that you're seeing um, that you're like, ah, I found it and then I'm going to fix that. What, what, what are the main sort of um, root causes that, that you're seeing these days? So certainly the blood tests are important in terms of, I guess it's never one thing. It's always a combination of many, many factors, um, stress and, and how that manifests in terms of the, the level of the cortisol DHA is, is certainly a factor. There are often nutrient deficiencies, often iron and B12. So, you know, even in people who, for example, 
you know, they may not be vegan or vegetarian, but they can still have low iron. And often it's microscopic loss through the gut wall because of a leaky gut. And, and that obviously is one of the key things that we, we then need to address later is, is the gut and the diet. Um, as we know, most of the immune system is in the gut. So if, if there's an autoimmune condition going on, it follows that that is one of the main things that we, we should be looking at later on. Sex hormones. So, for example, there might be an issue in dominance, which, again, is very common in women. And generally what that means is is in there, there, there should be a specific ratio of estrogen to progesterone. So what's common in women these days is that the estrogen is relatively higher to progesterone. Uh, and that can manifest as PMS symptoms, fibroids, endometriosis, um, ovarian cyst, breast cysts, for example. So that also impacts thyroid function because high estrogen levels increase something called TBG, which is thyroid binding globulin. As a result, that means there's less free thyroid hormones circulating in the blood. So basically, high estrogen generally does correlate to low thyroid function as well. So it is an interplay between all these different um, glands. Nutrient deficiencies I do find are quite common. Uh, B12 deficiency can, can occur. Um, and that's, again, that could be absorption often as well. So again, even in people who are not necessarily vegan, um, people may have helicobacter pylori infection. And that, that's also been shown to be one of the triggers in Hashimoto's as, as one of the potential infections that can contribute towards triggering Hashimoto's. And of course, there's, you know, there's autoimmune conditions involved in the stomach, like pernicious anemia, but we just can't absorb that as well. So they may also have that as a coexisting autoimmune condition as well. I just want to dive into iron and B12, because I think as a vegetarian yourself, I think this is quite an important area because there is a, a misconception that, you know, if you've got red meat in your diet or you eat, you know, a selection of animal products, you're going to be fine from a B12 and iron point of view. But you mentioned leaky gut there or intestinal um, intestinal hyperpermeability. Um, what, what, how, how does that manifest in someone who is eating or consuming uh, enough uh, uh, B12 in their diet, presumably? In terms of the, the main factors, it, it could be, again, there's various factors. There's something called the autoimmune triad. So, there's three factors there. One is the celiac gene or genetic predisposition to developing autoimmunity. Then there's intestinal permeability. And then there's triggers. So some of the things that can, can contribute towards the so-called leaky gut, um, gluten, like the gliadin in wheat especially, is, has been shown to increase intestinal permeability. Infections is a big one. So bacteria, even certain parasites, have been shown to also contribute towards leaky gut as well. So what we mean by leaky gut is it's 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 actually at the microscopic level, this description. So essentially speaking, if we have, you know, adjacent cells, um, there's a tiny little gap between those two cells to allow nutrients to get absorbed back into the bloodstream and toxins to get excreted. But what can happen is, is if that barrier is damaged because of, say, certain foods like gluten, infections, toxins, that gap can widen and the, what that potentially can mean is that nutrients can get lost when they should be getting reabsorbed back into the bloodstream and it also means that, that toxins can, can, can enter the bloodstream as well. The, the hyperpermeability element is very much in the name. It's hyper because the intestinal permeability is, is a normal phenomenon. Whenever, whenever we eat anything, there are going to be gaps in those tight junctions of our, our, uh, our digestive cells. 
uh, all along the the digestive tract, largely in the large uh, intestine. And that's to facilitate the movement of nutrients into the bloodstream that we need. The excess of that process, which allows uh, things that should be maintained in the gut and not pass through the gut wall into the bloodstream, that's when you can get into problems and I, and I, and I believe you know the 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 gliding proteins for certain people um and uh, and, and and people with uh, particular allergies to certain types of food this is what can manifest in in this issue is that have I got that right and it is a combination of factors i wouldn't say there's ever just one thing and when it comes to that diagnosis being made it's you know it's sometimes the, the straw that broke the camel's back you know if we then look back at the history in their life there's been a lot of insults, whether it's emotional stress or, you know, many, many factors, you know, diet related. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a process. It doesn't just happen, but um, there's often things that have been happening for, for a while. And then it can just be, you know, a life event that can just sort of trigger someone. Okay. And so let, let's let's dive out a bit into... Um, I think that the autoimmune tribe is very important. You know, the genetic predisposition, the permeability of the gut... And uh, and particular triggers as well. Actually, another sidebar before we carry on, because I I, I noticed um you said infections and and the the thing that most people think of are, are things like H. pylori, um but there are other infections, aren't there? There's there's uh, Epstein Barr virus. There are infections that we might have had as kids and just completely forgotten about, but these can manifest quite a lot later on in life, right? Gut dysbiosis, for example, which describes that imbalance between the good and the bad bacteria. So. For example, um, you know, there could be certain bacteria that can, can act as a trigger as well and, and parasites. And one of the things that we, we see in the gut microbiome test is, is an overgrowth of, for example, streptococcus. So strep, as we know, is a bacteria, is, is, is commonly, you know, we, we've all been exposed to it in some form in terms of tonsillitis, strep throat, chest, ear, sinus infections. And what what we know about streptococcus, which is quite interesting, is that it can persist in the system. We, we don't always get rid of it. There has been research where, because of the various toxins it produces, including lactic acid, it can actually contribute towards chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia. It can also be that trigger um, through molecular mimicry in autoimmunity as well. Um, so that's certainly one of the common things that we tend to find as well. Um and again, this is digressing a little bit, but but the the acronym PANDAS, which is Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Conditions Associated with Streptococcus, it's a well known thing, especially in the states, not so much perhaps in the UK uh, or, or Australia, but that can also then persist into adulthood if that strep is still there. I just thought of Dr. Alessio Fasano's quote. He's he's the the obviously the the, the gastroenterologist who who's done a lot of research into zonulin and leaky gut, and he he says. You know, the gut is not like Las Vegas. So what happens in the gut does not stay in the gut. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Okay, so w w when it comes to managing hypothyroidism, right? So someone comes into your clinic, you've done the tests, they've got low uh, l low levels uh, of of the thyroid hormones in their blood. What, how, how do you manage the acute phase? Like someone needs like, you know, a fix right now versus you know some of the other things that might take a little bit of work so, so talk us through your structure of how you see a patient comes in you're going to treat them you're going to you know uh, improve the management of this condition that is lifelong uh, as best as possible talk us through that process 
So in terms of medications, again, it depends on the extent of the symptoms. And if if the levels are quite low, they're quite symptomatic, then we, we can certainly start treatment. And yeah, I, I would have that discussion you know, on that individual basis of of whether we, we start yeah, Ciroxine, T3, or a combination. Obviously, it's not the first line, but if, if that's needed, you know, depending on the, on the severity of the symptoms, then it's totally justifiable. But my general framework is to look and look at all the foundations, which starts with lifestyle and environmental factors. Now, obviously, this is a longer term approach. It's, um, but I think that that's, that's important for the long term. Um, but certainly medications in the, in the short term at least can help with the knowledge that later on we may be able to reduce that medication and maybe even stop it altogether, depending on, on, on the actual scenario. So, um, so yes, thyroxine may be necessary if we have done their reverse T3 and they've got a low T3. A T3 in addition may also be justifiable as well, and, and that's, again, also a common scenario where we see people come in who, come in who are already on thyroxine, uh, but they're still not feeling great, and that further testing re- reveals this low T3 and high RT3, and they start to feel much better on T3. If that's not sufficient, then there is another treatment that can be used called thyroid extract, which was interestingly the, the original treatment before the pharmaceutical companies started manufacturing thyroxine, and this is just very briefly, it's porcine or bovine-derived glandular extract for, from the thyroid, which is made by compounding pharmacies. Um, so I know there's not met that many in the UK, but there's certainly a, a lot of compounding pharmacies in Australia, and it's quite quite easy to get. Um, and the, the good thing of, about that is that it's naturally got T4 and T3 because it's from uh, the thyroid gland and it's obviously it's got other other thyroid hormones t1 t2 it's got other nutrients like selenium for example as well so that can suit some people and when t4 even with the addition of t3 isn't enough to control symptoms i often find that once they're put on thyroid extract it does help so again, that's also very individual and some people may not want to take it. That's anything that's animal derived, but there's certainly some good research on it. And um, T3 is not commonly prescribed by by practitioners. So yes, T3 is available as a medication that is used by uh, endocrinologists, but it's a, it's a synthetic version. We can also... Um, have T3 compounded in different doses, but it's not it's not your 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 general one that most GPs would prescribe. That that's generally in the realms of integral practitioners. I just want to clarify: levothyroxine. What are we referring to? And when we say T3, is there another particular word that people use? Yeah. So levothyroxine is, is thyroxine, or T T4 is what we commonly call it. T3 is liothyronine, which which is the, the technical term, but yeah, it, it's T3. So essentially, as, as we know, that's uh, a tyrosine backbone with four iodine molecules. That's T4. T3 is the tyrosine amino acid backbone with three iodine molecules. And as we know, the thyroxine is, is the general treatment that, that any any GP would would be familiar with. T3, at least here, I, I don't know about the, the UK, but here, some endocrinologists do prescribe a, a branded version called tetroxin, which is a 20 microgram dose. Um, but thyroid extract is not 
um, prescribed conventionally. It's it's only prescribed by integrative and functional medicine doctors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I haven't actually heard of a thyroid extract before. Um, and I, I guess what, what would be the potential downfalls of having a thyroid extract? Is it... Um, because they're not regulated like most pharmaceuticals, you could get differing doses depending on which compounding pharmacy you go to. Yeah, because it's a, it's a natural product. It has it has iodine in it, and some people can be, especially with Hashimoto's, can be quite sensitive to iodine. So uh, you can actually you can actually flare. You know, iodine is um, you know it's it, it is very individual. Yes, we need it, but too much can actually can actually worsen thyroid function. It depends on the compounding pharmacy. So I, I use specific ones, which which we know they're, they're, they're certified to the extent as that what what we get is is what you know is is that actual dose. But yes, there can be that variation because a lot of some some compounding happens at the back of retail pharmacies. It's not as well regulated in terms of the conditions and everything. So it it does depend which compounding pharmacy you use. Yeah, yeah, okay. That that that's a, a really good point to make. So so let's talk about. So we've got the medications, you've got your selection of different drugs, uh, of which we've just clarified there. In terms of those foundations, what, what, how, how do you go through those in a, in a stepwise fashion? Main categories, obviously, stress, sleep, nutrition, movement, environmental toxins. So they're the sort of things I'm, I'm going through in my, in my head. There may be many things that need changing or improving in someone, and I, I like to do that as an overview, but... We also have to, you know, it's it's a personal it's personalized medicine, and you know we have to take it one step at a time, depending on the individual. Not everyone can sort of radically change their diet and you know change their life in in a matter of days. But it's important to manage stress, um, and as we know, it's something that we take for granted. But it's important to take steps to to mitigate some of that day to day stress, even if it's saying, okay, well, let's start a a short meditation practice once a day or do something like yoga nidra, which is like a lying down progressive muscle relaxation meditation, which had has a lot of great research around it helping to improve sleep as well and balancing the autonomic nervous system. So strategies around stress as well, stress, stress management, as in, as in anything, it's about meeting the person where they are. And, you know, some people are not open to doing meditation. It's, it's, you know, finding something that they're, they're comfortable with. Sleep is also really important. So, again, I think this is something that doesn't get talked enough about. Um, we, we take it for granted, and we think we'll, we'll be okay with a few hours of sleep. But as we know, there's so much evidence on on why sleep is important, and you know, sleep itself has been shown to affect thyroid function. Not surprisingly, we, we, will, we will suppress the TSH as well. So, really important to to talk around the sleep hygiene. Um, even if it's saying, right, let's go to bed at 10 or 11 rather than one or two, you know, just, just little, little strategies, um, around that as well. In terms of diet, again, there are specific diets that have been shown to help in Hashimoto's, but, you know, long-term we want a, obviously a healthy whole food plant-based diet. So, you know, I would, I would talk, talk through, through the principles of that. But in terms of Hashimoto's, gluten and dairy-free diets have been shown to reduce the antibodies. They do help to reduce inflammation. A lot of the studies that have been done have been done over like a six-month period. So it's important to to tell somebody this is not 
just a few weeks worth, you know, you might need to do it for longer. It doesn't necessarily have to be forever, but at least initially while we're trying to improve things and improve the gut function and reduce leaky gut, let, let, let's just do the best we can. So the gluten dairy free diet can, can, you know, is, is one of the, 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 the main things that I would, I would start with. There is also another diet called the autoimmune protocol, which is commonly used by many practitioners. That's much more strict. And I, I, I personally don't start this straight away because it can be quite restrictive and also quite difficult to do if you are vegetarian. And that, you know, as we know, that cuts out grains, legumes, nightshade vegetables, like so many things. But the studies are positive in terms of they have been shown to reduce inflammatory markers. In one study, it didn't actually reduce the thyroid antibodies, but the study was only done over a short period of time. So again, you know, Changes can take a while for, for for them to show up, but anecdotally, clinically, as well as from what the research is showing, they're, they're the sort of diets that can be helpful. But it also depends on what else is going on with the patient. So there may be IBS and a low FODMAP diet could be trialed. There may be small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and we might need to think about a SIBO diet. Uh, we might need to take into consideration the fact that someone's vegetarian or vegan as well. So potentially a wide variety of diets that can be used. I wouldn't say there's one Hashimoto's diet or anything like that. In terms of movement, too much or too little movement is pro-inflammatory. So sitting is the new smoke, as they say. You know, we, we know from studies that prolonged sitting, you know, can, can increase inflammation as well. So you know, simple strategies like, you know, if someone's, you know, sitting down all day just, just to get up every hour or so, just have a little bit of a stretch and walk around for a bit. Um, but also too much exercise has also been shown to be pro-inflammatory and also e- even contribute towards leaky gut. Um, so they've done studies on long-distance running and marathon training where that, that can affect sort of the, the gut function as well as thyroid function as well. So we need the right amount of movement. It, obviously, in many situations, people are just tired. They don't want to do anything. But there again, it's just a case of just meeting them where we're at. And even if, even if just a little walk, a little bit of stretching, a bit of Tai Chi, Qigong, restorative yoga, often that's the sort of thing that we need to think about, not Bikram yoga. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. I just wanted to uh, just touch on the nutrition element. I, I think it's, yeah, really, I, I've had a family member actually recently go on an autoimmune protocol diet as a result of uh, a hypothyroid diagnosis. And I think when you do these things in isolation, particularly, you know, people want to do something that they feel is more tangible than just optimizing their sleep or reducing their stress or doing some breathing exercises. And so they go all in on quite a restrictive diet. Um, And like you said, it's bloody hard to do an autoimmune protocol diet because you're literally removing a lot of very very healthy uh ingredients and you end up just having things like soup uh you know because there's literally nothing else to eat so part of me is like is it the ingredients is it the fact that you're on a low calorie diet is it the fact that you know you're not going to have any permeability because you're based basically not eating anything uh, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of like holes that people can fall in. So I think doing something very basic, like removing the crap from your diet as a first point of call that a lot of people who perhaps see you have already done. So maybe that's why they need to go down the, okay, well, let's trial a, a, a GF and a DF diet. 
um, but removing a lot of the elements that are pervasive in our in our uh, food landscape, emulsifiers, additives, high amounts of sugar and salt, that toxic combination um, could be enough for, for a lot of people as a first point uh, before they entertain more sort of extreme measures yeah absolutely and i think it's always important to get that balance and in you know always discussing what the components of of like yeah, a whole food plant-based diet are and, and for them to yeah as you say just just try to eliminate or at least reduce some of the some of the pro-inflammatory foods and drinks that they're having as well you know whether it be alcohol or excessive caffeine or you know having having gluten every day uh, takeaways, you know, even takeaways, even though they might be Thai or Indian, they could be seen to be sometimes potentially healthy. That they're, they're not because of the oils that've been cooked in, etc. So, so yeah, I think that all those basic principles are really important before embarking on anything. But yeah, as you say, often by the time people will come and see integral practitioners, you know, people have already been down this rabbit hole of different diets, and um, I do believe in a balance for sure, and you often find people who get so restrictive and it just starts to affect their mental health because they can't go out and they can't go. So it is that balance. And you know, I remember a patient who had uh, colitis and, you know, on a strict diet, went to Italy, had a holiday, was eating pizza, pasta, everything, and they were fine. So yeah, <laughs> so many factors. Yeah. And again, we can digress into the wheat in Italy is different from the wheat here. It's all sorts of things like that. But I do believe in balance, totally. Yeah. I, I, I think there's a mindset element as well. I've got a friend of mine, one of my closest friends, who um, who's definitely lactose intolerant. And he went to America. Uh, he, he went to like, uh, you know, um, it was like Disneyland or something like that. Uh, and uh, it was like favorite place in the world. Stress-free, you know, loving life, had all the cheese he wanted didn't have any symptoms he was like it can't be the quality of the dairy that i was eating i was eating like the worst type of dairy his mindset it was his mind like when he's back here in the uk like he's running a company super stressed and all that kind of stuff so i think there's a rich interplay between our perception uh, and our gut as well as we know through the gut brain axis so i I think that's that's really important um i want to touch on a, a an uncomfortable truth about environmental toxins we've talked to professor uh shanna swan on the podcast before and she she really like made me worried about everything and so at the risk of like you know um painting a really bleak picture to the listener about the state of our environment we should probably talk about toxins and and the impact on thyroid health as well um how do you approach that subject with 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 your patients chronic illness as well as autoimmunity is on the rise you know a large part of that being because of environmental toxins, including heavy metals, plastics, parabens, things that are just found ubiquitously everywhere. Um, awareness for, 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 for one, so that, you know, I sort of give them resources around um, what they can do practically. So simple practical strategies may, may be, for example, you know, especially for a woman, they're, they're moisturizers and makeup and cosmetics to try and at least use natural products because you know the the parabens and phthalates etc found and all the chemicals found in in these products you know are are endocrine disruptors not not just for thyroid but for insulin resistance etc as well so simple strategies like just converting it over to something that's more natural and you know luckily there are so many more products like that available now which are 
you know, more environmentally friendly. Um, water, drinking water is is important, like in terms of trying to get it filtered, because again, that can have other halogens like chlorine and fluoride, which can, you know, compete with the iodine, and that can also worsen thyroid function as well, um, as well as obviously heavy heavy metals, etc. So, you know, f- filtering that their, their water. Um, again, there's, there's many companies here that are available. It can be done quite inexpensively as well. And and again, that's also another point. When we're talking to patients about strategies, it's we've got to be practical. You know, it's everything can cost money. Um, so, um, you know, coffee cups, for example, like drink coffee out of a normal cup because even the plastic lining of takeaway cups and the lids, that's plastic. So when you've got hot, hot, hot acidic coffee, that's leaching out the plastics as well. And um, to, in terms of plastics overall, like BPA-free isn't good enough because we know even BPA-free has other plastics that are just as bad, if not worse than BPA as well. So, yeah, awareness um, around all those different environmental factors as well, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, yeah, it's, a, it's an absolute minefield, I think. Uh, there are some simple things you can do. Um, one of the things I've been taking to doing is, um, just trying to get into my park as much as possible. Um, and instead of, and I I do really strange things like, and I I doubt it's having much of an effect, but if I'm going somewhere in London, I try and take the scenic route. So I try and look for parks along the way and try and go along those routes rather than going alongside roads and it's a stupid thing and maybe it's you know the the placebo effect or whatever but i just feel like i'm filling my lungs with a slightly cleaner air but i mean this is pollution everywhere so you can't really do much uh, apart from moving to the countryside which i'm trying to convince my partner to do um with, with regards to supplements so you know obviously you're going to be personalizing it according to whatever deficiencies you might be finding whether it be um, selenium, magnesium, etc., iron, B12 that we we talked about earlier. Are there specific herbal supplements that you think are p- particularly interesting for, from a research point of view or or a, a personalized medicine point of view? Yeah. So in in terms of for the thyroid specifically, like for example, there, there's certain herbs like um, nigella, hemidesmus, curcumin that have been shown to improve thyroid function. Aloe vera is an interesting one. There was actually a recent study where they found that aloe vera uh, reduced thyroid antibodies as well. So you actually see, um, you know, aloe vera, nigella within within supplements these days as well. Um, hemidesmus is another herb which has been shown to have immune mod- modulatory effects as well. Um, curcumin, as you know, that's good for everything. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not good for <laughs> because obviously inflammation is one of the key things, you know, key factors that's 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 happening within any, any any of these patients. So that's good, obviously, for reducing inflammation for liver, cognition, etc. Um, so yes, a wide variety of herbs, often as part of formulations, that they're not having to use everything separately. So I'm quite mindful of how many supplements we use because obviously. I always say, look, the more we can do from lifestyle, the better, because you know we, we don't then need to use as much. And obviously, to incorporate whatever herbs we can in the cooking. So, even obviously, turmeric in the cooking, um, yeah, for example, you know, even teas like you know dandelion teas is great for the for the liver. So we don't always have to have specific supplements because obviously, too many supplements can be not just overwhelming, but can get expensive for people. Um, so incorporate whatever great herbs 
and nutrients that obviously you can in in the diet as well for sure yeah yeah like a a, a herby spicy diet that's full of color is uh is basically good for everything yeah. <laughs> that's discovery yeah. when chatting yeah. to all these people yeah and as we know when it comes to the guts it's in the gut microbiome it's it's diverse diversity and variety of the keywords we want a variety of different colored foods and veggies and fruit and everything because that is what creates a diverse microbiome which is then beneficial to our health uh, and again studies have shown that there is a a diminished and, and a changed uh, gut profile in in people with Hashimoto's as well um, and interestingly there's been research on how specific nutrients influence specific bacteria as well so zinc selenium magnesium they've all been shown to influence good bacteria as well so so yes yeah, so lots of good interesting research coming out really interesting that's awesome um amy this is this has been great i think we've really taken the listener on a on a journey of of understanding their thyroid even if they don't have a thyroid problem i think it's really important to understand the sort of how interconnected everything is and how you know you can't treat anything in isolation you've really got to be thinking casting that out wider when you we think about um certain elements and how this can interplay with the menopause cardiovascular problems off cholesterol ratios, um, weight, gut problems, you know, er everything is really interconnected and and, and thyroid, I think, doesn't get as much attention as it should do, um, particularly as it affects um, a certain uh, part of the population uh, more so than others. So this is great. Uh, I I love your work. I love the book. Um, And uh, we're going to do this again some some other time when I'm next in Australia. Definitely. Have to catch up soon. (laughs) All right. That's awesome. Thanks, Amy. I really hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Amy. Remember, you can pick up Slow Butterfly, how healing your thyroid transforms everything from all good bookstores online. And uh, I really do think it's a fantastic manual for anyone who may have uh, hypothyroid or low thyroid conditions. And she breaks it down super nicely. Uh, Remember, you can watch the podcast on YouTube as well. Uh, We're going to be doing a lot more videos as well and snippets from the podcast. So it makes it easier for you guys to get all this information in a bite-sized format. uh, And uh, you can subscribe to the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter in the meantime as well. I will see you here next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.